Hey everyone, wanna let everyone know some classes that we have coming up. We're gonna be at the TACOPS Tactical Conference in Nashville, August 22nd to the 25th. If you're gonna be there, make sure you come up, say hi, and attend the class. We've also teamed up with the Savage Training Group to teach our patrol survival tactics class that's gonna be hosted by the Santa Clara Police Department September 18th of this year. Go to savagetraininggroup.com and get signed up before the seats sell out. Hey, we're out shot fired. Copy additional shot fired. Shot fired, shot fired. Shooting at us, shooting at officers. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. Very interesting guest today for you guys. We are very excited to have him here. John Becker with Aardvark. Thank you for taking your time. I know you're in town, uh, carving out some time to come speak with us in our studio. We very much appreciate it. Thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. I love to be here. I love the show. Absolutely. Um, we did have to cancel on you yesterday, and I do apologize for that. So I did stand you up. My bad. What about um, Monday? Are you going to apologize for Monday, too? This whole week's been crazy for me, so I don't even know <laughs> what day today Monday is. Monday and Tuesday. Did we? I mean, yeah. if you're going to stand me up, a murder suspect is certainly worth And And like yeah. I told you, Kyle, like I, 40 years of dealing with SWAT teams, you're not the first. You won't be the last. Buddy. I was going to say, how many people actually stand you up? I thought the number was going to yeah. be pretty low, but. No, it's it's a long list and it doesn't even hurt anymore. So <laughs> okay, good. I, I recognize that what you were doing was probably a little more important than what we're doing right now. Yeah. So. We tried. So <laughs> thanks for making tonight work though. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. No, my pleasure. Town for, uh, for some business stuff. Um, Hey, I'm going to kick the, the ball over in your court. Tell everybody uh, that don't know you who you are. You've got like a very super interesting background um, that we're still learning about even just sitting here chatting yeah. before you're kind of like the man in the shadows. And you had mentioned that um, tell everybody who you are and what your background is and what you're doing. Yeah. So my, my, I founded Aardvark when I was 17 years old. Uh, started as a rock climbing company, doing rock climbing equipment, started dealing with SWAT teams and spec ops units that were buying ropes and harnesses and carabiners. And, you know, they would say, well, I, I didn't want to be a sales guy. Uh, that was my, my one criteria for my, you know, late high school, early college business was I, I don't want to sell stuff. But in order to do business, you have to sell stuff. Yeah. So um, it, it was kind of a kind of a conflict. But what I what I figured out quickly was if I understood the gear, at a really deep level, at a deeper level than my end user did. I wasn't a sales guy. I was a consultant, mm -hmm. right? I was helping them to make good decisions. Turns out that that was a really good business model. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the story. I, I will tell you, I am tactical Forrest Gump. There was almost no forethought into anything that I did. I ended up in the right place with the right people and happened to make lucky, good decisions. Um, so, you know, I, I don't want to portray myself as business genius boy. It, it was dumb luck. Uh, that I just met the right people. But so the, the, I started doing rock climbing equipment, ropes, harnesses, carabiners, started dealing with more, you know, SWAT teams. Everybody had a rappel master. They all read climbing magazine, which is, you know, where, where I was advertising. And uh, they started asking for, you know, can you get us harnesses? Can you get us ropes? And, and I would have conversations with them because I had taken time to actually understand what I was selling. And that turned into, you know, can you get us Eagle nylon gear? Can you get us, you know, can you get us probes? Can you get us, you know, and as the, as the, as the skill set started to broaden, um, I started to move into areas that I really didn't know anything about. You know, I grew up in a military family. I grew up in a law enforcement family, but you know, can you get us chemical agents? Dude, I don't know anything about chemical agents. Oh, we're doing a gas class. Come down and go through it with us. Okay. So my, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like my rule was I would never turn down free training. Yeah. By the time I'm 25, I've got 3,000 hours of special tactics training. I've been through handgun, subgun. I mean, everything, wow. pursuit driving, jail management, it, 
because as it turned out, the guys I was dealing with who were the, you know, the, the kind of technology leaders in their teams were also the guys that were doing all the training. And so, you know, the, the, the center of excellence in any police department for a particular thing is the guy who's most interested in it. He's yeah. also usually the guy that teaches it. True. So frequently he's the first guy that I talk to at an agency who's looking for a particular thing. And, and back then it was, you know, can you, can you, you know, can you get us chemical agents? Can you get us Eagle nylon gear? Can you get us, you know, you name it, optics, et cetera, armor. And I would, I would always say like, I don't know anything about it. I'll come down and you go through training with us. Well, by dumb luck, again, tactical force gump. Um, it is the, the two teams that really brought me up were LA sheriffs, SCB and LAPD Platoon. And so the guys that I hooked into very early were really the national leaders in special tactics. It was John Coleman who founded the NTOA and Sid Hale and Mike Hillman and, you know, Ron McCarthy and all of these thought leaders. And I, I guess they saw something in me that they thought would be useful to them in the future and invested a lot of time and a lot of effort in me. And it's a debt I'll never repay um, because it, it built literally my whole career in my business. Uh, 22, I go to law school. I spent uh, three years in law school. The last two years, I worked LAPD police litigation. So mm -hmm. I was just, again, tactical force gump. I got there during the rise in civil litigation, during all of the you know dog bite cases starting off, Rodney King, the Reginald Denny case, all the SIS cases, the rise in SWAT litigation, when the ACLU really began to weaponize litigation against law enforcement and just happened to be there for the last two years of law school. So that's what I started writing on. That's what I started researching, uh, started writing for NTOA and started teaching, you know, alongside Sid and others, teaching legal aspects, teaching physiology. I don't teach tactics. That's not my job. But I was teaching, you know, physics, physiology, all, all of the stuff that goes into chemical agents and all that. Yeah. And now, you know, 37 years later, 36 years later, um, this is my life's work. I've, I've done this literally my whole life. Um, the business is very focused on tactical teams. So, so my job is protecting tactical operators and everything that I do from a business standpoint, from a, a you know, charity standpoint, from a philanthropic personal interest writing is all geared towards the protection of tactical operators. Wow. So you really did fall into this as kind of dumb luck and then going to law school, um, you got embedded with LAPD and started, you know, doing that with them. So I, I'm curious. So, I, well, maybe we should circle back to this because where, like where we are going and now in law enforcement, I think you have a good insight on where you see law enforcement going kind of with that background and then where you were, you, I mean, you said you were there like during the Rodney King era yeah. when all that was going on, like the legal side of stuff. So I, I, I think a lot of our listeners are curious what your thought is, is on that because it's funny, full circle, here we are 2023, <clears throat> all of these topics are being you know, brought back up again, there's new yep. litigation, there's new laws being written, uh, nationwide, which, you know, obviously ironically enough, everything starts in California and then kind of spider webs its way out to all the other States. So, um, that's a huge part of law enforcement right now. Yeah, it is. So we we're definitely going to circle back to that. Um, how did, so you start supplying all these gear, you never were in the military. Nope. You never became a cop. Did nope. you ever want to become a cop? Never. Or? Really? Well, was never interested. It's, I don't know. It's, it's really strange. Like it was never, 
It was never something that interested me. Just the gear guy. I, yeah, I, and I don't think it's so much the gear guy is is what I saw right from the beginning was the role that wasn't fulfilled was kind of the medieval armor role, right? You think back to medieval times, uh, you guys are going into battle. You're going to go to somebody to build your weapon system. You're going to go to somebody to build your armor. Your life is going to be dependent on that person. Whether, whether you realize it or not, every time you're buying armor, you're betting your life that yeah. whoever did that did the right That's thing. true because you, do you even think about that as a cop when you put on your vest like, well, I hope whoever made my vest, it, I hope they had their shit together that day. And I, I mean, nobody thinks about that. No, I just, I actually just wrote an article for NTOA about this. This is a point of rage for me. I've written two articles now for NTOA, five years apart, both of them based on chicanery I see in the armor industry. Uh, there is an assumption on the part of law enforcement that, that our industry is a very highly regulated industry. It is not. Yeah, I would, yeah, I would argue it's not. It, it, it is not. And there is an assumption that the NIJ is running around and policing body armor companies. They are not, right? If you submit to NIJ guidelines and you submit to the NIJ program, yes, they are paying attention. But if you just blow it all off, no, they're not because it's not their job to police the industry. Mm -hmm. So I saw right away that there was this gap in, in the understanding of gear um, I didn't, I didn't really didn't expect to end up where I ended up. Like I planned to be a lawyer, you know, and, and what happened was the community invested so much in me that I fell in love with the community. You know, you think about the people that I deal with for a living are people who are willing to place themselves in harm's way for someone they don't even know. Yeah. Right. And there's so many examples. You look back at a couple that we've interviewed recently, like the Bataclan hostage rescue, like those guys knew somebody was going to die from their team. There was no doubt in their mind that somebody was going to die. They did it anyways. Yeah. So who better to serve than people who are willing to make this, you know, make those kinds of sacrifices and devote their lives to helping other people. And it didn't, it didn't click for several years for me, but at some point I, you know, I got out of law school, I passed the bar. We we're kind of at that inflection point where, you know, my wife and I are like, okay, I tied up with a law firm in West LA doing law enforcement litigation. I quickly realized that private law enforcement litigation is an insurance company settling a case. Yeah. Um, it's, it's never like at the city, we tried everything because we were self-insured and the lawyer I worked for, who was a guy named Corey Brent, Corey would sell a kidney to protect a cop. Like he was that guy. He, and and if, if we, if the cops did the right thing, like he was in it for the mission and would argue passionately to protect the officer. Even, even if it meant the city was going to lose money, it's like, we needed these guys did the right thing. We need to defend them. Yeah, good for him. So then you get into civil litigation privately and you realize it's an insurance company that's like, oh, we can give this guy a million dollars. Wait, no, this guy just shot at a cop. Yeah, yeah but a million dollars were out of this case. Yeah, we're going to save two, 2000 bucks. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it, that felt kind of dirty to me. And at that point, the business was just beginning to take off. We'd started doing bigger military projects. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was really clear to me that this was a calling for me. Uh, there was no doubt in my mind that this, I was serving people that really mattered, that were doing things that really mattered. And I, like I said, I have a debt to this community that, that, you know, I'll spend the rest of my life repaying and, and this is a great way to do it. And by chance, it also, you know, gave us a great living and I'm surrounded by, I always say I'm surrounded by assholes, but they're exactly the right kind of assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, I'm, I'm trying to picture a 22 year old passing oh. the bar and then deciding to develop and create body armor. Like how, what is, how, where did that come about and how did you, how did you just decide, Hey, I'm going to. The majority of my better. career decisions are made in anger. 
<laughs> or what? They're made in anger. Made in anger. Okay. So, right. so th- there are a lot of things that Aardvark has ended up doing because I've either a written a check I couldn't currently cash with my mouth, mm-hmm. like oh yeah we could do that, yeah. or I've been so frustrated and angry that I'm like let's just do it ourselves. So right. Project Seven is a let's just do it ourselves. It was actually we started Project Seven seven years ago, and it was after twenty some odd years of selling armor and being frustrated. Because I spend my time with teams, you know, while I'm up here, I, I spent a bunch of time with your old team, yeah, you know, yeah. like that's, that's what I'm doing is, is that's, that's what's, that's how the business gets better. That's how we serve our end users. So my time in the guidance of the business is spent with teams. What are they doing? What are they thinking about? What's frustrating and what's working and what's not working. And I could never get the industry to build what I wanted. And I finally just said like, how hard can this be? And, and, you know, Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Mm-hmm. We tend to think we know a lot more about things at the beginning than we actually know. Yeah. I went into it like, oh, this can't be that hard. See, it's not that bad. And then you start to roll down the road and you're like, oh, this turns out it's actually really hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but by then you're committed. <laughs> but that was really, the, I think, the genesis of Project 7. And, and the genesis of a lot of the products we've made have just been my frustration. I've always viewed myself as working for my teams, which is kind of backwards in the industry. And, and I, I always say like, you didn't, I didn't realize at the time how the culture of the business was being set by my end user. But like the first guys I put armor on were friends, right? They were people I cared about. And like, I can remember doing all, we were in Arcadia doing the entire Arcadia police department. I knew everybody on a first name basis. Like there was, there was never a time an Arcadia cop went by that I didn't know them. And so it was really personal for me. And you're supplying the, the one thing that's going to protect, yeah. save their life. Yeah, potentially. absolutely. It's, it's, you know, wow. it, it, I guess I never really thought about, I never thought about that. No, not yeah. at all. I didn't even think about it. Well, yeah, I tell you the, the, like, you know, not so funny story, but so we just, we, this year had the first save in project seven, mm-hmm. uh, which was a kid named Jordan Robinson, who's a great guy. And, uh, it was a San Bernardino shooting. We talk about it on the podcast, but I mean, Jordan was shot seven times. Uh, one, the round that hit Jordan's plate hit him would have been right into his aorta, uh, his abdominal aorta. Like it would have killed him. He'd already been hit several other times. I found out about that sitting in a parking lot waiting for my daughter to get her hair done for a formal dance. Wow. So I'm sitting in a parking lot, you know, fat, dumb, and happy waiting for my daughter to finish her hairstylist. And a friend called me and he's telling me about the shooting. And I knew that they were in our armor, but I didn't know what had happened. And he's walking through it and just cavalierly off the top of his head, he's like, oh, dude, your, your vest saved this kid's life. Like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, he got hit in the stomach. It would have killed him for sure. And I'm sitting in a parking lot, tears streaming down my face. No idea why. Just this like a, a massive emotional hit of like, okay, everything we did, Fuck. all the time, all the money is validated by this one kid. And when you meet Jordan, thank God. I mean, trading that guy's life for the, the shit bag that he shot in that field or that the team shot in that field would have just been such terrible math. Uh, he's such a good dude. And just, you know, you listen to the interview with him and it's like, that's the part of this that I don't think people really understand is, is how unbalanced the equation actually is, right? You guys spent the last two days looking for a murder suspect, yeah. right? Who easily could have shot anybody on your team, mm-hmm. right? And we would be trading like our best and brightest, right? People who are willing to pour themselves in, do the right thing, help other people for a completely self-centered piece of shit. Yeah. Right. And so that, that balance always struck me right from the beginning of my career. And it really resonated with me that there needed to be somebody who protected you. Yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about that 
particular case and it's like all the time or all these years and time. And like you already said, money that you've invested in this product to make it what it is now. Like the one time it saves one guy. That's well worth all it. All the well worth it. Right? Yeah. hundred percent. Like, I want to know, like, so I, you, you kind of touched on it, but like, I want to know what that personally felt like that had to hit you pretty hard. I literally, I literally, years. yeah, no, I'm literally sitting and we'd had saves before in other people's armor. And, you know, they hadn't always been like, you know, you guys would get grazed or whatever. Mm-hmm. But this was like, we had built the product. Project it seven. was on nose. It's project seven. It's us. It's, you know, it's a team that we, that I fitted that, you know, we know. And yeah, I mean, I'm literally sitting in a parking lot with tears streaming down my face. And I kind of didn't understand the emotion of it. Like it, it, I knew it was going to be an emotional thing. I didn't know it would hit me the way that it did. And it still hits me this way. Like we just did an event to celebrate Jordan and, uh, the, the Sam, chief from San Bernardino showed up and at, at our event presented Mel's Valor to the four guys that were in the van. And like, you can't, until you see that and you see the effect it had on their families, like you can't understand it. I remember there was, I was probably 10 years into my career and a, a Glendora cop named Louis Pompey was killed. I didn't know Louis. But Louis was really close friends with all the guys at Arcadia. And one, one particular guy, Joe Bale, who was, who was a dear friend of mine, um, now dead, but dear friend of mine, great guy. Joe was 6'5", 350 pounds of, y- y- you know the guy. He's big, he's jovial, he always has a joke for you. Everything he says is funny, that's Joe. We went to Louis' funeral with Arcadia PD. I sat behind Joe. I had never seen Joe do anything other than smile and laugh. I watched Joe absolutely decompose at Louis' funeral. I mean, he was sobbing. He was, he was ugly crying like a child and didn't care. And I walked out and I told my wife, like, I'm never going to be the same. And she said, why? And I said, that's what happens. If we fuck up, that's what happens. Yeah. Like, that's the consequence. And it's easy to see it on TV and go, yeah, oh, cop gets killed. Okay, yeah, his family's probably fine. Like, mm-hmm. no, no, that's not true. There's a, there's a 23-year-old girl getting hanging a flag, right? There's two little kids and will never see dad. And all of that still to this day, like it, it like hurts to think about it, It's just, it's, yeah. and so it, then when I got to the point that I had to choose, like, am I going to practice law? Or am I going to do this? This was a really easy choice for me. Like this, this is a very meaningful thing to do and it's kind of overlooked. We kind of forget. Yeah. I mean, shit when, I mean, just, you just don't think of that. You don't think of that side of it. And I know as cops, like we don't think of that stuff, you know I mean? No, I remember when I was on the team, we got project seven and that was brand new gear. And I'll tell you the story later about getting it, but you know, I put it on and was thankful that it was a better product and lighter and was built for me, not thinking and knowing everything on the other side of it, not realizing that when I put it on, I should be saying, thanks Ron. You know, like yeah. for, you know, you should put a little patch on the inside that says you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so, John, so when people put it on, they're like, they, they think like there's a real human being that is doing this to make people's lives better and safer. Oh no, we like, so we, when we did the saves presentation for Jordan, uh, we brought in Ed Hinchy. So Safariland builds our armor for us. Um, because I, if I was going to bet my life or my son's life on armor, I'd bet it on Safariland. So that's who we partner with. And um, we had all of our sewers. We had our, our whole staff at the event. And I brought in Ed Hinchy, who runs the saves program. Um, if you're going to watch any episode of my show, watch the episode with Ed Hinchy. Ed was a Pittsburgh cop who was shot in the line of duty. Uh, he runs the saves program for Safari Land. Ed has interacted with more cops shot in line of duty than probably anybody in the world. And you can look at their saves program and go, it's a marketing thing. It is not a marketing thing. 
Uh, Ed has an almost unlimited budget to make sure that the officers that are shot in their armor are taken care of. And that might mean they go to SHOT Show, they get a presentation, you know, they, they meet the people that made their armor and that's the end of it. Or that might mean that Ed is pouring his heart into trying to find resources to help families that are damaged. And I've never seen anybody care as much as he does. Um, I, I like to jokingly call it the hinchy asshole test. If you meet Ed and you don't love him, you're an asshole. And that is the only data point I need to know. Yeah. Huh. You know, one thing I was thinking about too, is the, the downfall of it too, is if, if something were to happen or if, you know, God forbid an officer gets shot wearing, you know, your particular armor that you design and, and there's a fatal cost of that, not saying there's a fault of yours or whatever. I'm just saying, I, I, I couldn't imagine the weight or the feeling of that. Have every single, yes, I think about it every day. Every single thing that I recommend to a team, every single thing that we sell to a team, somebody's life is bet on every day. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, And it's, it's very easy to like, oh, you know, they're, they're informed consumers and you know, whatever. No, like in the end, our job is to make sure that you guys are safe. And if we fuck that up and we, you get killed, that's on us. Yeah, fuck, man, that's right? a lot. But it's, it's an easy to, I don't think that the majority of the industry sees it that way because they no. didn't have the experience that I did of spending all of my childhood immersed in teams. Yeah. Hmm. Right. And it's a lot of the reason that I, I like to stay very current with teams and spend time with teams is it is a constant reminder. You know, it makes me smarter. It makes us better. makes the business better. It's also a reminder that what we do really matters and we need to pay attention. Yeah, no doubt. Speaking of that, um, Mark, you wanted to ask him if you knew what an aardvark was. Well, I know what an aardvark is. I know, but you wanted to ask John. If of you course, knew. I know what an aardvark is. It's an <laughs> yeah. earth pig. Yeah, absolutely. It's an earth pig. Yeah, you, you are pig. a very intelligent guy. I, I pegged you to know the answer, and I was like, dude, I'm pretty sure he's going to know the answer. And he's like, I don't think he's going to know. 100. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, he totally <laughs> said you. I was like, aardvark. Yeah, like that's a that's an interesting African animal. It is probably one of the ugliest animals I've ever seen. I I think you need to see some baby aardvarks. It, yeah, it should, you should have had that as like they're a adorable. Logo. So our original logo was. The original logo was a hand sketched aardvark. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, tra traced it out of an encyclopedia. <laughs> did you did you name it aardvark because of ground pig? Or so, so no. What, what happened was um, when I started the business, I didn't really know where it was going to end up. Like I knew we were going to do climbing equipment, and I wanted something kind of weird and quirky and something that didn't fit the industry. And one of my friends said, "Call it aardvark." I'm like, "Why?" And he goes, "It's got two A's. It'll be the first listing in any phone book." Damn, that's actually a, from a yeah. marketing standpoint, that's smart. Right. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's, you know, and, and I remember thinking, oh, that's really smart. And then I thought, I'm not going to name my business Hardvark. And then two weeks later, Hardvark was the name I remembered. Oh, I'm wow. like, it's, and the thing is in our industry, it is so freaking weird. Everything is Falcon, Hawk, yeah. Tiger, Lion, you know, everything's, Aardvark. yeah, and, and Hardvark. <laughs> yeah. Right. You, you, you will remember it. <laughs> Once you learn it, which will require some spelling lessons. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if this is, a, if you're just listening to this on audio, Google Aardvark, it's a pretty you know people are, dude. interesting. They're on Google thing. image right now. They're like, oh, yes. Aardvark. Like, Jesus, what the hell is that? Yeah. It looks like Mark. All right. So you talked about how you came up with Aardvark, the name. What about project seven? I know you said that was a, a, your pick. Yeah. So, so project seven was kind of a rage project for me and it, and it was a passion project. It was like my view of armor. I look at armor the way that you look at the parachute in a fighter jet. It is there because this doesn't have an opportunity to do its job, right? Mm -hmm. You are wearing armor to protect you for when your tactics and or shooting skills do not protect you. 
Yeah. It is not your primary method of protection, right? Yeah, a, fi- a parachute in a fighter jet is a, oh shit, the plane's going to blow up. I'm out, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's how I look at armor. So what's always frustrated me is the armor industry never really spent a lot of time, or a lot of the manufacturers never really spent much time thinking about how you actually use armor. How does it sit on your body? How do you move? Uh, my view has always been that you've got to be able to shoot and move effectively because if you can't shoot and move effectively, you, you need armor, yeah. <laughs> right? So, so that's always been the frustration for me. So as we started to research it, it was like, how do we make this stuff actually work and allow guys to fluidly move? You know, the, the words from the beginning were comfortable and athletic and, and athletic really matters, especially when you look at what a modern team is doing, especially in a hostage rescue or a linear assault, anything that's high, you know, high movement, high speed, um, it, it really matters. And so when we started Project 7, we actually worked uh, with um, Safari Land, who gave us a designer to design a platform. And we started with a, literally a white paper. And I walked in with a list. This is what it has to do. And number one on my list was weapon platform. You've got to be able to shoulder a weapon effectively. You've got to be able to shoot. Uh, lower on my list is trying to get guys to wear upper arms because upper arms have kind of gone, had at that point gone out of fashion because they were poorly designed and they didn't sit well on the like arms. Shoulders. It's a crazy statistic. 18% of cops that are killed in body armor are shot through the arm. Yeah, I believe it. 14% are shot in the head. Wait, go with those stats one more time. 18% are shot through the arm. 14% are shot in the head. Hmm. Yeah. You would never run a tactical operation without a helmet. No. Well, we, our team, you, you had to wear your, your shoulders. Like it was, it was suicide not to, like it, it made no sense. And our old gear was very difficult to shoulder a rifle. Correct. And sometimes raising your arm up, it you, like you clinked in yeah, there. You really yeah. Couldn't, but well, that's, that's why guys stopped wearing them. Yeah. But you think about what you're presenting as you make entry. Yeah. Your shoulders. You're presenting your shoulders, right? You're presenting the side of your body. Yeah. And, and so that was, you know, there were several things on my list that I want to make sure we do this. And, and, you know, we developed the platform, which then led to a, a small design cell, which then led to a manufacturing cell, which has now led to more than half the company is, is dedicated to just building armor. Um, and now we can do anything. We can start with a white sheet design and end up with a completely manufactured product. Um, and the name Project 7, we, we went through 5,000 different names. And I wanted something that was, again, kind of amorphous. You weren't really sure what it was. There's too many, you know, simple project, you know, and so we tried all these different things. I'm like, it's just a project. I'm like, well, why don't we get a project in a number? And then we went back and forth on numbers and, you know, somehow project seven was the one that were like, oh yeah, let's just call it project seven. Ah, so very simplistic on both names. Yes. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big marketing thinker. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, you do a lot of leadership stuff. You teach a lot of leadership classes for Cato, other SWAC. Uh, conferences and, and uh, within organizations, correct? Oh, sorry. Now am I not talking into the mic? No, you're not. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that was for all of you that listened to the last podcast. We we heard you loud and clear. We are very much so working on the microphone and our guests talking to the microphone. John's doing a great job. He runs his own. Is that why? You, is degree. that why you guys tape me on the tape me to the chair? Yeah, and we said yes. don't move. We uh, said, don't we threatened uh, him? Don't move. Yeah. All right. Um. So <laughs> hey, let's. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of what we like to talk about is, is leadership and leadership in law enforcement, where it fails and where we think it fails. Uh, you, I mean, just by design of what you do, uh, you have a lot of um, eyeballs into a lot of different agencies and you're, you're embedded into a lot of different departments. So you get to see a lot of different cultures and departments. What do you, 
what do you see that's working? What do you see that's not working? And kind of like this cultural shift that's going on currently in law enforcement. And then I think when you and I spoke on the phone a little bit, you kind of had this idea of where you think law enforcement's going. Yeah. So, so I've watched, I've watched this cycle several times in my career, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, Rodney King is the most, the most egregious example where everybody knew that there was going to be a pivot in law enforcement. We, you know, law enforcement polices at the consent of the people. And like any other government entity, that consent is sometimes more freely given than others and sometimes taken away. And And the actions of law enforcement, the, the representations of law enforcement kind of drive the public perception. And that's kind of where society gives or takes permission from law enforcement, right? The, 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 you know, the George Floyd case being a perfect example where the majority of people, every cop I've ever spoken to about it, were offended by what they saw. Right. It was, it was clearly an unconstitutional act. Yeah. I mean, in the end, our constitutional rights live and die in, in state and local agencies. Right. It's like everybody. The, the, I remember going to the Holocaust Museum and they said, you know, the thing people don't understand is it wasn't it wasn't the Nazis that came for the Jews. It was the local police. Right. Local law enforcement is where the Constitution lives and dies. It, it's not it's not on the floor of the Senate. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's in Citrus Heights or, or Sacramento or, or, you know, Rockland or someplace else in the middle of the night on a traffic stop. And so we get these events and certainly there's an organized opposition to law enforcement and they're lying in wait. They're waiting for George Floyd. They're oh, hoping yeah. for George Floyd because they already have bad legislation written. Right. And, and they're just waiting for, for somebody to make a mistake. But I've seen this cycle go back and forth over the years I actually think we've probably seen the apex of the cycle. I actually think we're starting to move backwards. Like, yeah, like it, it. It, it's, it got pretty bad with, you know, with BLM protests and, and everything else. And, you know, California trying to pass more stupid laws. Um, I think it's starting to move back because what we trade for our freedom is our safety. Right. That that's when you go to the airport and you have to take your shoes off, you are directly trading your freedom for your safety on the airplane. Yeah. That's, that's true with law enforcement, right? The permission we give you to police us, we are trading a certain amount of safety for that. And, and, you know, some comfortability and everything else. And, you know, you can, you can go to any major city right now and look at what's happening with, with drug use on the streets and with, with homelessness and, you know, crime and see that, that we've made kind of a stupid trade. And so I think we're in the process of gradually starting to move back towards the middle. We never settle in the middle. It's the balance is never right, right? We're, we're overprotected. We're underprotected. It's never going to be a perfect balance, but it's a balance. So to me, it looks like we're moving back in the right direction, but I do see trends in law enforcement that I think are really deeply disturbing. Um, There's a couple things that I think when we did 3% 50 in California, you're talking about the for the retirement system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when we decided that police officers should retire at 50 and we were going to give them, you know, in some cases close to 100% of their salary for the rest of their life, we made a trade. And the trade was we were going to take everybody that had 20 plus years of experience and have them leave the organization and we were going to replace them with somebody who had no experience. That was not a good trade. It's a good trade for the cops that took the retirement. It was not a good trade for law enforcement in general. And so you know, you think about the guys you work with and you think about when guys really hit their powers, right? They're at the height of their game. Their ego's not involved. They're thinking clearly. They've got a lot of experience. They're in their mid to late forties and they're about to retire. Yeah. And so the people that, you know, are in a place to impact the culture and do understand it 
are being driven out. The other thing that we're seeing is this, this kind of notion of cancel culture, right? Like one of my favorite lines is the founding fathers would never get elected today, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody that founded this country would ever make it past their first media interview. Probably not. <laughs> right. So you, Oh, Jefferson was a great man. Well, he had, he was complicated. Yeah. Washington was complicated. Yeah. Madison was complicated. Right. Yeah. These guys were all complicated. They're brilliant thinkers. They, they put our country in an amazing place. They acted beyond themselves. We don't believe that anymore. So now it's like, well, the first time this guy screws up, let's get rid of him. The problem with that is if you look at the founders of SWAT and you look at the, the, the real guys that have been huge influences in law enforcement, they're guys that have made mistakes, right? They're guys with experience. And the guys in an organization that are working dangerous assignments, the guys that are working street dope and working SWAT and working NARC and working canine, they're all going to get in trouble, yeah. right? They're all going to make mistakes. And, and they're aggressive, forward-leaning cops mm -hmm. who are the guys we want leading organizations. But now we go, oh, that guy's been in trouble. Let's promote this guy who's just been an admin his whole career because he knows more. He's not the leader right? He's not the leader. The guy, the guy that went hard charging into the active shooter, that's, that's the leader. That's who we should be rewarding. We're not. And so I think there's a really disturbing trend of promoting people who are avoiding conflict and avoiding difficult assignments their whole careers. And as a result, they get into positions of leadership and they don't have the experience. They don't have the breadth of experience. And so I, I think those two trends are kind of setting us up here to see the kinds of things that you have seen in some of these major catastrophic events where, you know, the leadership of the organization just abdicates responsibility. God, I'm like sitting here like, Oh, cause I'm like, I listen, dude, hundred percent. I agree with you. And I guess I gotta be careful what I say. Cause I don't know with my bosses, we're going to see this, but I, I agree with you. And, and I think a lot of cops frustrations are, exactly what you just said. You got a lot of people in the industry who avoid the conflict, who don't have that experience that those types of cops have. Yep. <clears throat> and now, or am I sitting here saying all those cops that are on the front line, the tip of the spear kind of guys, are, are they always going to be a good leader? No, I don't. No. But you, you do need someone to see the, the, the big picture, right? And take that step back. But I find it that it, and just doing this for 16 years and seeing guys like that promote, it, it's hard for them to get a good picture of like what this job really is and how fluid it really is and that it's not 100%. You can never remove the risk or danger from the job, right? A good leader though, with that level of experience, being the tip of the spear guy who does it long enough, is gonna have a good idea of how to mitigate that risk as much as possible, yep. but know in the back of your mind that that risk is still there. Now, how do we mitigate it? That, that to me is a good leader. What, where I see where a lot of departments struggle is um, they don't want to recognize that in guys that, sorry, Mark, and I'm trying to focus on you as well, but um, they have a hard time letting guys like that lead because I feel like they think that guy who was the tip of the spear is just running and gunning and not seeing the big picture and and top admin are afraid to promote guys like that because they think they're going to put them in some precarious situation. That's going to be some huge liability event, right? Like maybe it's a lack of trust. I, I don't know, but I don't know. I, I mean, you're sitting there saying that and I just, I a hundred percent agree with you. There's not enough of those tip of the spear guys that are leading organizations. I think part of it also is misunderstanding. Like I, I had, I had an argument with the chief of police who had turned away a guy that had worked Marsoc. 
So, uh, you know, he worked in a special operations unit. He, all the combat deploys probably got PTSD. He's probably got all these problems. He's going to be too aggressive. And I said, so you took a guy who has been proven in ridiculously complicated situations, has not only survived, but thrived. And you turn that away and you literally just picked a random name out of a hat. Probably a 22 year old kid with zero life experience. Correct. That kid is going to make more of a tragic mistake than the guy that's been 100%. in special operations. That's 100%. the problem. That's the problem. But there's this, there's this crazy notion that, you know, and I think, I don't know if you've read Radley Balco's book, Rise of the Warrior Cop. No. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Every cop in the United States should read this book because you will agree with probably 90% of what he says. Like 90% of what he says, the way he recites the constitution, the way he talks about where it came from, you know, I always say it's 90% spot on, 5%, I disagree, 5%, you're totally full of shit. And then the 5% you're totally full of shit will boil your blood, but that's okay. That's, that's a small price to pay to understand the adversary's thinking, right? And, and it's, the problem is that those kinds of books and the positioning of law enforcement, and, and I mean, law enforcement to some degree has done it to itself, right? Like I, I watched small town police departments get MRAPs and kit themselves out in multicam with M4s and, you know, their, their six-man SWAT team is going to go serve a warrant with an MRAP for, for, you know, a pharmaceutical warrant. Like the, the public looks at that and goes, that's not reasonable. Like in the end, what you do has to be constitutionally reasonable. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's, I always said like the, you know, the, the gun lobby is a perfect example of where like the media will go find the stupidest three tooth hillbilly who wants to own a cruise missile. And that's going to be the representative. And, and that's the same thing that happens with law enforcement is they go find the most egregious example and that's what the public's going to hear about. Here's the problem. Law enforcement has no counter narrative, yeah. right? There yeah. is no counter. I just wrote an article for police and security news talking about the Breonna Taylor case. And one of the things that struck out to me is, is, is I did the, the, you know, I did a lot of research before I interviewed John Mattingly. Like I read everything. I, I put the lawyer brain on and read everything, watched every video, watched everything I could find. And there were, there were several things that kept sticking out to me. One of the things that kept sticking out to me is the police department had no counter narrative. So the, the soon to be vice president of the United States is on national television saying that the police served the warrant at the wrong house and killed an innocent woman in her bed. And the police department didn't respond. Right. So guess what? That's the narrative. Why do you think that is? I we, think it's a couple we things. talking about this actually yeah. yesterday, totally off topic, but we were just having this conversation yesterday with each other. Why do you think, like, why do you think that is? I think it's two things. I think one um, law enforcement has historically had a circle of wagons mindset because they're constantly being attacked by the media. And that's the perception is the media is coming after us. They're attacking us. So circle the wagons and, and try to fend it off. Um, and I think that that, that kind of natural circle, the wagons approach of, we can't trust the media. We can't talk to them because clearly, you know, you could say 99 smart things and one really stupid thing. The one really stupid thing is going to lead the news hundred percent. Like I, I don't, and, and I don't think that's because the media has a grand conspiracy against the, against law enforcement. I just think they want eyeballs. Of course, and I think that, them, yeah. yeah, the stupidest thing you say is the most interesting thing. So I think that that's part of it. I think the other thing is that we've allowed an organized opposition to position the narrative in a way that no matter what law enforcement says, it looks like it's being defensive. 
And so there's this idea that like, if we, if we start talking, it's going to be used against us and it's going to look defensive. So let's just wait and let the facts come out. I think we, <clears throat> we watch a lot of press releases and management speak on, on the news throughout the country. I mean, we, we monitor and look through all that stuff. And one of the common themes is that what we try to do in this podcast is be very neutral and just talk about what's happening. Yep. And what I notice in a lot of these press releases, or uh, I guess that's what it is really, is a press release or, or interviews, is it's very robotic. And generally the ones that are put in front of the camera are, are defensive of their agency, who they are, I'm a cop, and they're not taking themselves out of it and saying, we're doing something, this is what happened, and we're gonna tell the public, this is what we know right now, and we'll figure out what's going on if there's violation, what, whatever it is, just being real with the public. It's, yeah. They're very defensive. It's stupid. For and, no reason. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I love what LAPD is doing. The way LAPD is handling critical incidents is like, here's all the video. We're conducting an investigation. We don't know what's gonna happen. A lot of facts that aren't in this video, but here's the video. Because, you know, I always tell people, like, it's, it's kind of like a horror movie. Think about like the early slasher movies, you know, the Friday the 13th Halloween movies. Like when you didn't know where the guy was and you hear the scary music, you you're terrified. Him. The yeah. minute you see him with the knife, it's just kind of campy and stupid. Yeah. Your imagination will take you to places that the facts won't. And so when you hear innocent black woman killed in her bed, mistaken warrant, you conjure up an entire image. Then you find out what actually happened and you're like, oh, none of that's true. So what you see is when an agency gets out in front of it and says, here's the video. We're still investigating. We're trying to figure out what happens. You see the video and you're like, oh, fuck, the guy had a gun. Or like, oh, they shot this poor innocent guy who was running away from the police. No, he was running. He was shooting over his shoulder. Yeah. So yes, he. I learned that working police lit. Like, oh, he was shot in the back. He was shot in the back because he was running away while he was shooting the police. It's almost like uh, when 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 cops are in front of the media and they are giving a press release or whatever, it, it's almost like they're in court and they're having to defend themselves. Like yeah. they're being questioned by an attorney about what the actions that they took and they have to feel like they're being defensive. I don't, I mean, they are co it, cops are, I, I think uh, when Sheriff Lamb was here, um, he made a great point, you know, when, when it comes to um, the way they do things in their PIOs and did they hire people within the media to handle their PIO stuff? Yeah. Because he knows he recognizes that cops suck at talking to the media and, and being in front of cameras and talking to reporters. That's not what we are trained to do. That's not what you're supposed to be. It's, well, it's, it's a different, it's a different skill set. It's a, it di is. It's a different it's a, job. Yeah. It's like, would you go to veterinarian to get dental work? No. I, Cause he's a veterinarian. I might, no. You might, yeah, it's fair. Just if, it's, if it saves but, your money. But no, I like, you know, it's, 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 it's crazy to think that, oh, this guy is a really good narcotics investigator. Let's make him the PIO. Yeah. How about if we hire a professional PIO? Yes, someone that is trustworthy, yeah. that has the ability to talk, that knows what is going to be said, and then you have them partner with an officer or sergeant or a lieutenant that tells them what happened, they figure yep. out, and then they actually give that information instead of putting someone that has never done anything, that promotes, is defensive to the public, and, and a general person would watch that and be irritated or offended by the press release, Yeah, have more questions, and then that person, that the officer that does the press relief release goes back and then everybody is like high five and like, you did a really good job with this press release when it's really like, they should be analyzing that and going like, that was, we got to do better next time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause in the end, you know, the, the media's investigation is going to take 24 hours. 
Yours yeah, is going to take 12 months. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. So, so own the facts out of the gate. Here's yeah. what we know. Here's what we see. Here's the video. Here's all the audio. Here's everything we know about the facts. We'll investigate. We'll get back to you. And the public sees it and 95% of the public look at it and they're like, oh yeah, I shot that guy too. If you That's don't it. give them the narrative, if you don't provide them with a the narrative, they're going to, they are going to come up with their own conclusion. Oh yeah. That's scary scary music, do. dark lit hallway. Yeah. You know, here comes the slasher. Just, yeah. It's just crazy that agencies to this day are, are terrified to do that. Well, I mean, to be fair though, it's, it's bitten them, right? Like this, this is a snake that has bitten. And I, the one example I always love to give is, so Daryl Gates, uh, one of the things Daryl Gates is, you know, most remembered for is saying that blacks are more likely to die from a chokehold than normal people. Oh God. <laughs> right. Which is a pretty bad soundbite. Yeah. Okay. What chief Gates actually said was it looks like based on the data a young black male is more likely to have a hyoid bone break and to die from a chokehold than a normal healthy person is. Wasn't saying that he was no, abnormal. He was comparing it against normal healthy person, yeah. but that was not, that's not the way it was portrayed. Right. So it, there had been countless examples and, and I knew Daryl, Daryl was a friend. Daryl was an amazing guy. Uh, never heard him say a racist thing. Never heard him say a sexist thing. Actually never really heard him swear. Um, but he had a amazing gift for putting his foot in his mouth in a press conference. Yeah. And so there's all these examples of where this has hurt law enforcement. And so I remember when I started the podcast, part of the reason that I did, and I'll kind of give you the origin story is we had a friend, Tim Anderson, um, Tim, uh, Marine Colonel, Vietnam experience, Persian Gulf experience, amazing guy. Uh, also LAPD canine, integrative thinker, really deep thinking guy did a lot of work on tactical science with Sid Hale and was, was an amazing instructor. Tim got ALS and died. And I remember standing at Tim's funeral and talking to Sid and saying, do you realize how much law enforcement lost today? Mm-hmm. Tim never wrote a book. Tim never taught on video. We don't have it on audio. Like all of this is gone. Like all that. All knowledge gone. 50, yeah. 60 years of experience, poof, gone. I said, this is, it's so stupid. We've got to figure out a way for guys like this to get on video and to get on audio and for us to be able to carry these lessons forward and to share them with a broader audience and, and said, looked at me and said, um, if you can figure out a way to do it, we'll do it. But we're not talking to the media because we can't trust them. Yeah. Right. And, and so that was ultimately what led to the podcast was, okay, I own the footage. I own the audio. That's you say something stupid, I can cut it out. That's the great thing about doing these podcasts yeah. is, is we control, we control the narrative yes. and whatever we decide to put out is, is we're still putting it out there to a huge audience yep. and you're putting it out there to a huge audience. Yep. But the, the nice thing is, is like you control it. Yep. So nobody's going to, well, I guess I could take sound bites or whatever from your videos or audio or, or whatever. Right. But you're controlling the narrative of what's being said. There is no, there's nobody in, in the media world to, to tell us what to say or to command us on how to do certain things. And, you know, it's one of the things I love about what you guys are doing, right? Is, is you think about it, the majority of people have no positive interactions with law enforcement, right? Like the average person, the only interaction they ever have with a cop is at one of the worst times of their life, either because somebody got called there or because they just got pulled over or their dog got run over by a car or somebody in their house got hurt. There's not this positive impressions. And so they don't understand what you do. And they don't, they're not going to take the time to understand what you do. And if there isn't a counter narrative, if there aren't cops that are willing to come forward and saying, Hey, this is what happened. This is what the officer saw. The public doesn't know. And so what they see is a 
talking head on a news station with a, with a political agenda uh, on almost all the news stations, yeah. right or left, who's going to clearly be biased and maybe hasn't ever been on the job or hasn't been on the job in 25 years, and he's going to tell you what to think of this. Well, if there's nobody on the other side. Yeah, no, totally. Right? So, so like I when know. you guys are taking body-worn video and breaking it down and going, this is, you know, here's what I see as a guy who's done this job. Here's what I see. That gives the public an opportunity to see a reasonable side of law enforcement and to begin to understand. And I think that's where we've got to get better at, at telling the stories of law enforcement in a way that when an incident happens, the chief of police comes forward and goes, hey, I don't know everything. Here's yeah. what I know. Here's what we saw. And then later comes back and says, here's the findings and here's why we found what we did. And here's all the things that I couldn't tell you that I knew. You know, because there's usually a lot of stuff that the department knows that they yeah, can't oh, they, they can't yeah. share. Yeah, which is fair. Yeah, no, it is. You should wait. It is, yeah. but but it is asymmetric battle, right? Like yeah. <laughs> the media gets to swing freely. It's it's like you know, it's like terrorists, right? They they don't have rules of engagement. No, it makes what, it a lot easier. <laughs> what else are you noticing that went with your travels and work with different teams <sighs> and departments? I think I think we've probably seen the beginning of the end for dynamic entry on search warrants. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of, that's fizzled out. It's, it's, you know, it's funny cause I interviewed Phil Hansen and Phil was one of the original SCB guys and, you know, Phil helped, helped to run the NTOA was you know, one of the earliest members of NTOA and Phil's a, you know, a legend. And one of the things he said is, you know, what we, what we realize now retrospectively is when, when all these SWAT teams were built, like you got to go back to the origin story, right? What is the origin story for most SWAT teams? Munich massacre, 1972. That is when SWAT teams really explode across the United States. Munich happens, right? For those that don't know the story, a bunch of terrorists take Israeli athletes hostage. It is the first live broadcast of a news event worldwide. They end up, the police are completely ill-equipped. They have no idea how to handle it. It goes catastrophically to shit. Everybody gets killed. And the world goes, wait a minute, if these terrorists are going to take hostages, why are we not more prepared? So if you look back at the origin story for, I, I pick, pick your tactical unit other than 22SAS in Great Britain, they all began between 72 and 76. And the reason is, one, you had a lot of, so many, there was a lot of tumult at, at home, right? Police officers are checking their cars because bombs were being put under them. It's the 70s, Right. But you have these acts of international terrorism, and we go on this kind of rampage of terrorism. Well, in 84, the Olympics come to California, come to L.A. And the President of the United States says, this will not happen here. Governor of California says, this will not happen here. Head of the Olympic Committee says, this will not happen here. And D-Platoon, SCB, FBI hostage rescue team all spend tons of money, tons of time training for hostage rescue and training to prepare for counterterrorism. So the roots of SWAT are actually in counterterrorism and hostage rescue. And so Phil talked about how, you know, that's what they were learning was hostage rescue tactics. Well, then when SWAT teams are serving search warrants and they're, you know, they're hitting, you know, rock houses and all that, they just applied those tactics to, to the new mission. And I, I think that that has led to some obviously bad outcomes. Um, you know, you can read Belko's book and find yeah. several of them. Um, and, and I think that we've kind of seen a point where society is looking at some of these cases and just going, you know, I'm not okay with this. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do think in the majority of major cities in the U S have already gone away from dynamic injury. 
So I think, I think the days of the no-knock warrant, I treat them as two different things. People conflate the two and say, you know, no-knock warrant and dynamic entry. Yeah, not the same. <laughs> They're not the same, <laughs> no. right? No-knock warrant is, is a legal concept. Dynamic entry is a different concept. The thing is, when, when, when you were serving no-knocks dynamically, you go back into the 80s where they just hit the house. Yeah. Like it was, you know, Sheriff's Department, boom, search warrant, off they go. They had a tactical advantage. They had the element of surprise. The minute you stand at the door banging for a minute, oh, no, there's yeah. no tactical, <laughs> like you do not have an advantage, no. right? So now the dynamic tactics, uh, it's funny because when, when Sid Hale went back to SCB, he cut back a lot on their dynamic entry. And I said, well, why did you do that? And he said, you know, he goes, the more I thought about it, the guy inside the house has made so many bad life decisions that the sheriff is knocking down his door with a SWAT team. I'm going to give him 30 seconds to make a life-changing decision. He's not going to make gonna the happen. right choice. Oh no! <laughs> right to the door. So, so I do think as a trend, you know, the NTOA has come out with a kind of an opposition statement to dynamic entry into no knock warrants. I mean, dynamic obviously for hostage rescue doesn't change. That yeah. that is a tactic, yeah. but it's a tactic, right? It's not a strategy. It's a tactic for it's a, a tactic. specific operation. Yes. So I think I think we're seeing that happening oh, yeah. everywhere. I mean, now you're seeing a lot of pickaways and. And if you think about it, it, it is smarter. It's smarter. Safer, it's safer yeah. for everybody, really. I mean. Well, especially when, when one of the things that Thor Eels talked about when, when I interviewed them is, Thor is the director of the NTOA, is, is you know, safety priorities. It used to be called priorities of life. That sounded a little too callous. So now it's safety priorities, right? You know, innocent victims, hostages, police officers, suspects, evidence, right? And most people don't put evidence in that priority. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if you really stop and think about it, evidence is in that priority. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that Thor said is don't trade anything above for anything below. Well, if evidence is at the bottom of the list, why would we yeah. ever risk a cop's life for evidence mm-hmm. to make the case? Yeah, I get it. The problem is we're assuming nothing bad's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it retrospectively, when a narc gets killed on a search warrant, like, you know, you look at Brianna Taylor and, and John Mattingly, if that had killed Mattingly, what could they have possibly found in Brianna's house that would have mattered? Yeah. I mean, ultimately they never even searched her house when all was said and done. But like, what, what are we willing to trade Kyle for? There's not much. And so I, I do like that, that we're seeing that trend. And I, I do think, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think we're also starting to see kind of a, a foundational trend for professionalization of tactical teams. There's a, there's a sad, that, that makes me think of a sad story that occurred, I think a couple of years ago in Kern County, Southern California, and this might ring a bell to you when I talk about it, but along those lines, SWAT team lands at a house, shots fired inside victim. They know victims are inside. They don't know who's dead, who's alive. Um, guy shoots at cops when they arrive, patrol guys when they arrive on scene. Right. So that's, how the SWAT team gets there. It's interesting when you, when you research this uh, story and watch the body cam footage of it, there's no active shooting or any stimulus inside this residence, but the SWAT team arrives. They're not there for a long time. They make the decision. We're, we're going to go in. We got victims in there. We know that for a fact we're going to go in. So I guess quasi hostage rescue is really what it is. So that decision is made. The problem is, is when the team goes to go make entry through the front of the door. He opens fire from the inside of the house and shoots and kills, I believe the first uh, SWAT guy in the driveway. And then I want to say shoots number two, man, he lives, but they end up grabbing number one and number two guys peeling back. 
And the moral of the story is the mission was never accomplished in the first place because if the, the objective of the mission was to go in there and conduct a hostage rescue at, at any cost and a SWAT guy goes down and unfortunately gets killed and then aborts the mission immediately, what was the, what was the point of the mission in the first place? Huh. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that story and I have when it, when it came out. And every time we go teach a class, I've, I've brought it up before in classes. Yeah. It's like if you really think about that, if that was your mission was to go in there and conduct that hostage rescue operation, um, I'm sorry when the number one, number one man goes down, you got to step over the number one man yeah. and, that, and complete the mission because now it's like, fuck, you just lost a SWAT guy for, for what? We never completed the mission. Yeah. Well, and you've lost it. You know, you've obviously lost the element of surprise. You're going into an ambush. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and the problem is like so many of these things, you can look at them retroactively, right? Like it's, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is a very easy thing to do totally. with what we do. But the problem is I actually don't think there's enough of it. And this is going to sound paradoxical, but when I started my career, I probably went to, I don't know, God, the first five years of my career, probably a hundred debriefs because information was shared in the community through debriefs, right? Before the NTOA caught on and, and the tactical, I mean, the, the original copies of the tactical edge, you go back to the early and they were full blown, honestly written debriefs because it was mailed out. Everybody had to be vetted. If you advertised, you got the pager ad was on. The only thing you got, you never got the magazine. The magazine was like an Intel report that everybody guarded jealously. Those days are gone. Anything that you put in a publication now is, is subject. So, so there's still kind of this notion of tell, telling story, right? Sitting down face to face and going, here's what went right. So in the 35 years I've done this, I've watched debriefs go from here's all the shit we did wrong to here's how cool we are. Yeah. And that's not a debrief. It's a story. Mm-hmm. That's a So like we do a lecture series, we'll do them once or twice a year, sometimes a little bit more. And that was actually one of the genesis for the podcast was we would, you know, an event would happen. Bataclan happens. We bring over the guys from BRI. We bring in an audience, handpicked audience of 200 cops, 150 cops, and, you know, 75, 80 agencies, no cell phones, no, no video, you know, Chatham house rule. Everybody's going to be honest. One of the first things I asked people when we're going to invite them to our lecture series is what went wrong on your op? And if that isn't a long list, there's nothing to debrief. Yeah. Right? That's the point of a debrief. What do we screw up? What do we get right? Yeah. I've seen that morph more into story and move away. And agencies have done that in part because they're risk averse. They don't want to document the mistakes that they made and, and give a plaintiff's counsel an opportunity to go, well, in this debrief, you said this, right? I think civil litigation's put a lot of downward pressure on, on self-investigation and law enforcement and, and in, in self-reflection in law enforcement. But I think that the, the trade that we've made there is officer safety because we're going to continue to make the same mistakes, right? If you look back, there's a new podcast called uh, Night Raid. Have you guys listened to that yet? No. It's about a case in Pomona. Uh, officer named Sean Diamond was killed. It was a Mongols gang member. They hit the house. He shoots, it's Brianna Taylor, basically. He shoots the first cop through the door. Guy named Sean Diamond. Sean gets hit in the neck and kills him. This guy is tried twice, hung jury twice. They end up pleading it to involuntary manslaughter and time served because he says, I thought I'm a dirtbag. I'm a gang member. I thought I was getting ripped off. I didn't know it was the cops, right? Come forward 15 years, Brianna Taylor, that's exactly Kenneth Walker's defense. Right. 
So, so how, what are we doing as a community to bring in a young officer and say, Hey, um, these are all the mistakes everybody before you made. Right. And, and it goes back to the earlier theme that 50 year old cop is the one that's like, Hey dude, 20 years ago, this happened on our team. 20 years ago, this team happened. 15 years ago, we saw this happen. Like, don't do this. Yeah. You know what that's called? That's called experience. Yeah. And, and that's called making a good leader. Yes. So, yeah. Well, everyone wants the police department to be transparent, but they're not transparent internally. No, yeah. they don't share that information. That's, yeah, that's a huge, that's a huge problem. And so, they, and that, but see, that's what's beautiful about what you guys are doing. And that's what we're trying to do is like my whole goal here is I, I now have a platform as do you to take somebody like Jordan Robinson and, and we, the interview did with Jordan was Jordan, their medic and the second guy behind him, Chris Shipley, who res, who saved Jordan's life. And it's like, walk through the operation. What did you do wrong? tell me your lessons learned. And, and now somebody in whatever shoe, Wisconsin watches shots fired and is like, Oh shit, we shouldn't do that anymore. So what, what is it? Talk yeah. about your podcast. I was going to say, pitch you, it, the debrief. Yeah, they keep, call so, it the debrief. That's yeah, what keep, we're talking about. Yeah, yeah you keep Again, po- simple names. Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't we think of that? No, yeah. no, no, no brilliant branding here. What's yeah. it called? It's called the debrief. Um, the podcast is long format. Um, and it's, it's really designed uh, furthering my life mission, protecting tactical operators of bringing what, what I see as the best and the brightest, right. As, as the best leaders we can find as guys that have had particularly novel events, um, really kind of advanced thinkers and putting them on the record, so to speak for a tactical audience. The show is for a tactical audience. Um, I, I don't know what the crossover demographic is. Um, you know, it's, it's not much cause it's very technical conversation. Um, it's, it's not, it's not hero stories. It's like walk through up. What did you, you know, what were you thinking? Why'd you make the decisions you did? No, no tactics. You know, we're yeah. not, we're very careful to kind of walk around sure. anything that could help, you know, future asshole to, yeah prevent what would happen. But, um, taking these incidents where we have lessons learned and, and we can now put them on a platform, you know, first season was video, second season's audio. We figured out our guys were listening to it on patrol, you know, or driving to work or running or whatever. Um, and, and it's really tried to take the smartest guys I can find and give them a platform to educate somebody they'll never meet. And like the, the great joy for me is, you know, I'll get an email from somebody. I, I got an email from a guy in Nova Scotia, right? Who I have never been to Nova Scotia. That's a long way from Southern California. Yeah. And, <laughs> and this guy said, you have changed the way our team trains for events because I listened to this podcast episode. And I'm sure you guys get those emails all the we time, do, right? Yeah. Very like, satisfying. It's, it's yeah. ridiculously satisfying. Yeah. It's motivating. All of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it is, it's, it makes you want to do this. Yeah. And realistically, every one of those guys, right? Somebody's going to watch shots fired and see an incident and go, Ooh, I'm not going to approach a car that way. Oh yeah. We've had, we have had that and yeah. it's, it is satisfying. Yeah. It's, so, so to me, that's, that's the root of it. It's not, I'm not monetizing it. There's no advertising in it. Um, it'll never have sponsors. I've intentionally built a firewall between Ardvark and the debrief. Mm-hmm. So um, the way, you know, 
They say men's brains work like boxes. Um, my brain works like boxes. There's the John as CEO of Aardvark box. And then there's the John uh, recipient of kindness from the tackle community box. Yeah. Uh, and they're different boxes. And so like you'll never see Aardvark reference. I actually cut out discussion of Aardvark if somebody brings it up. I actually, I cut it out because it needs to stand on its own. It needs to not have this underlying commercial tone where people are like, oh, they're just doing that to sell, sell product. I respect that. I really do respect that yeah. as a, as the, you're, you're, you're the, you're the guy in charge here, right? And in your whole building a business is to market yourself and sell the product. But, but I do respect that you're not out there pitching your product on the debrief. You're, you are keeping it separate. Uh, because, it cheapens it. Yeah, I mean, because you're right. It does come off as like a, it, it almost just comes off as like a sales pitch. It is a sales pitch. I mean, how many trains have you gone to put on by manufacturers where you're like, oh, that's great. I've heard about every device you make. Oh, yeah. um, why don't you we tell me how much some of them yet. are used? Yeah. Tell me how some of them yeah, are if used. If you want and, more of this training, just, hey, go sign, hire us. We'll come out to your department for 3000 yeah. bucks and we'll teach you guys. You're like, damn, dude. All right. Yeah. It's just, it, it's, I, I've, I've been through so much of that and it's, it is a very slippery slope, right? It's, it's, it leads to incremental decision-making, you know, Amy Winehouse did not intend to end up that way. <laughs> she made a series of very bad decisions, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and so it's, it's easier for me to just build a wall between the two and <clears throat> never talk about one on the other. And keep in mind the mission of the debrief is, is to provide information that will save guys' lives. And, and, and I honestly think that is a much higher calling than even my day job is because it, it, it'll have a more, in, it has a greater impact, right? The business can only protect the number of people we can interact with. Mm -hmm. That's not true with a podcast, no, right? You guys, everywhere, thousands and thousands of people yeah. all over the world yeah. are watching your show. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. they're people you not only will never meet, you don't even know where they live. You don't oh, even yeah. recognize the name of their town. Yeah. Yeah. We get guys from, I mean, all over Ireland. Yeah. I mean, we've had Australia, a lot of listeners from Australia. I mean, yeah, all, all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So it is wild. It is, it is very cool where a podcast can go and the information that, and, and, and again, we're, we already said it, but like the information you put out is what you want to put out. Yes. So that's, that's the unique thing about it's it. It's what you, it's what you care about. Like we, we started this kind of shorter series now that we're calling battle proven leadership. And the idea of these shorter episodes is let's take people that are tangential to tactical that you would never meet. You'll never have a conversation with. Uh, the first guy we interview is a nuclear submarine commander. Right? You're like, what can a nuclear submarine commander teach me? Well, uh, mm -hmm. he's got a crew of 190 people. Any one of them can kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and 185 of them are 22 years old. And most of them don't even have a college degree. Yeah. Right? How do you create a culture that is ridiculously safety conscious, but also is questioning authority. And so we, he, he, the guy's name is Bob Koontz. It was a fascinating conversation. I just interviewed a guy who's a commercial, he was a, a, a Royal Air Force guy, uh, was, you know, aviation safety, you know, pilot, crew chief, or pilot, trainer, all that. Um, he now does commercial dive stuff. Hmm. And, and like he's written a bunch of stuff on what he calls counter-errorism. Guy's name is Gareth Locke. Um, in 30 minutes, Gareth talks about like, what do we really need to care about with safety culture? Right? It's not something you'd run into. You listen to it and you're like, oh shit, there's something I can take from there. Right? We interviewed Kevin Sear from RCMP, who's one of the bigger tactical thinkers I know. RCMP's ERT team is a full-time 60-man team in British Columbia, 200 plus operations a year, 
Like this is a, you know, LAPD, LA Sheriff caliber SWAT team. And Kevin's a big thinker. He, he's, a, he's a leadership thinker. And so what, what I'm trying to do is take things that are right on the fringe of stuff that you would read or hear about and just expose you to it. Hmm. Because if I can get you to think of the problem differently, even if it's some subtle little inflection in your thinking, that may make you safer. Right, and it can be something really simple. Bob Coons talked about tripwires and how in a Navy submarine, there are certain things that happen that if that happens, there is an immediate response and there is no discretion at all. Hmm. So if a submarine gets within a certain distance of a vessel, the submarine immediately takes evasive action, regardless of what the vessel is. Hmm. Fishing trawler, somebody that could have nothing to do with it. If it gets within this radius, you will immediately take evasive action. Why? Because the one time they didn't do that, nuclear submarine crashed into a fishing trawler and they relieved everybody in the chain of command. Why? Because tripwire, right? You think about that from a SWAT team standpoint or narcotics team. Like if this happens, we immediately stand down. Nobody thinks of it that way. And and so we do incremental decision-making and that's why they do it is to stop incremental decision-making. So I, I think there's a lot of stuff a lot of what I'm trying to do is, is change the leadership and change the way the leadership in tactical units is thinking and, and both in, in trying to affect future leaders and also just to get guys to look at the problem differently and then expose you to stuff. You know, I, I'm ridiculously fortunate. I deal with the top units in the world and I, I have a level of access that is far beyond what I deserve, what anybody deserves, but far beyond what I deserve. But it gives me access to some of the most interesting, amazing people who do stuff that is just crazy. You know, these counter-terrorist units in Europe and the stuff that they're doing, it's insane. So it's like, let's, let's bring those guys out. Let's try to get those guys in front of an audience that they would never see. Yeah. Mm. That's crazy. And it's funny too, because like we talk about leadership and you have like such all these great ideas of changing the culture of law enforcement. And the fact is, is you were never in law enforcement. You're just surrounded by it. But I think from your outsider's perspective of, and being embedded in so many different departments and knowing so many different cultures, I think, uh, I think you have a good, good knack for that. I think my, I think the fact that I have some objectivity, I think that's what it is. Like I have no, I, I'm emotionally invested in law enforcement. hundred percent. Yeah. It's how I've made my life really care about cops. I'm not emotionally invested in any single agency. I'm not emotionally invested in cops always doing the right thing. The con law background and kind of my, the way that I look at constitutional law, like I'm, I'm mildly anti-government at my core. Um, I'm not anti-local, you know, anti-local government, but I'm kind of mildly anti-government. Like I, I think that, you know, the constitution wasn't written to give us rights. It was written to prevent the government yeah. from taking them. Yeah. Right. And I think there was a lot of wisdom in that. And so that kind of, you know, I guess it's like a mildly libertarian bent to my thinking um, does, I think, give me the ability to look at these situations somewhat objectively um, in the same way that you guys are taking like what you're doing with body worn cameras. Right. Of of here's the facts. Here's kind of an objective look like let's not let's not get emotional. Let's yeah. just have a logical discussion about stuff. And you're not, you're not politically motivated to, to make certain decisions. Like it is, it is an objective opinion from an outsider's, an outsider's perspective. As much as it can be. Like it's, I mean, in the end, like, look, I, I, I love cops. I love SWAT teams. Uh, I've dedicated my life to them. What do you uh, think about canines? 
Yeah, not obviously. You've never even said canines. I don't know if I so, ever told him. I don't know if I ever told him I was a dog handler. So yeah, dog. You animal. were expecting a dig, dude, and you're not going to get it. So I mean, first well, of all, he, he looked at me. We're, we're we, yeah. I mean, everybody knows that the smart partner is the one at the end of the leash, not the one holding the leash. True. Yeah. 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 I mean, that size. <laughs> I think canines. Sorry, on this one. I think canines are a really interesting question right now. You know, I mean, California took a serious swing at banning bite dogs. Oh, they're coming back with another swing. They, they, again, like if you, if you've never watched the the show on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, you should watch that documentary because you will understand how the adversary thinks, you know, before Ginsburg was the Supreme court justice, she was an ACLU lawyer. A lot of the rights that our wives and daughters enjoy, they enjoy because the case is brought by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ginsburg goes through the cases and talks about like, we were waiting for this kind of a plaintiff. We knew we needed to move the law. We had to wait for this kind of a plaintiff, right? Law enforcement doesn't look at it that way. Yeah. The opposition does. So they're waiting for stupid dog bite. Yep. And there've been plenty of them. I mean, you're they're, a canine handler. They have it all the time. If you've ever sat through, sat through Gene Ramirez's case on, or class on canines, you, you see the list of just like, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. It's, it, but it continues to happen. I mean, even though we're sitting here talking about it, it's it's everyone's been talking about it over the last couple months that this law came out for California. Guys are still going to make stupid decisions. Yeah, I think I think one of the problems that we have, and this is again like a bigger trend question. I think one of the problems we have is we we are underfunding the training of law enforcement. Yeah, catastrophically, yeah. right? Like like we're taking an airplane pilot with you know 100 hours and putting him in charge of a 787 and saying I hope it goes well. Like if, if we're going to have canine programs and we're going to have SWAT programs, like the discrepancy in skill set that I see dealing with teams from tier one units to very small part-time teams and from U.S. based to European based, um, I always use example of, you know, it's like a driver's license. I've got a driver's license. My daughter's got a driver's license. And Lewis Hamilton has a driver's license. We're all drivers. Mm-hmm. We don't all drive the same. And when you look at law enforcement, it is not a monolith. The, the difference between a full-time 60-man tactical unit and a part-time small you know, 10-man rural team is, is huge. They, still, they have the same mission, right? But the skill set gap there is, is catastrophic. And so we, we have to have those skills, Right, we we need to have tactical teams in small rural areas, and those areas don't support full time tactical teams because they don't have many ops. But then what we're going to do is we're going to look at that part time team, or we're going to look at that canine that's had one bite in his career, and that's how we're going to judge every agency in the United States and go, well, see, dogs bite bad, and and I think that we really need to take a serious look at how we handle canine services, tactical services. You know, there are parts of the world where regional teams are, are the way that they do things. Mm-hmm. And, and they're not, the challenge with the U.S. is we have so many law enforcement agencies, yeah. 18,000 is the number that keeps getting thrown around, that, you know, they're not 18,000 ridiculously good canine programs no. in the United States. Yeah, there, there's nothing, in fact, there's a lot of stuff that I've been reading on regionalizing a lot of stuff and just having those teams be mobile because you have consistency in the training it's expected throughout. Yeah. I think uh, that's a, we should have you come back and, and really dig into that subject. Cause that's a, I think that's a whole nother subject about the training and what you've seen, because that's, that could be super interesting. Yeah. I, I, I mean, short answer, I think there's opportunity for improvement. Yeah. 
Um, and I hope, I hope that that improvement comes and I hope we start to fund law enforcement training effectively yeah. before we have really stupid law. What's yeah. what I would ask both of you guys, what is the number one thing that always is going to get a training shut down for anybody in, in, I don't care if it's a cop as somebody in a specialty assignment, what's the one thing that always gets cops shut down for a training? Funding. Funding money. No, you can't go to that class. It's a, it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's yeah. $250. We can't afford, it's not in our training budget for a class that potentially could get you trained up to be able to handle something that much better to be that much safer for everybody. But we don't want to pay the $250 to send you to that class to bring that knowledge back to make you safer, your team safer, and then ultimately make a better decision on the street to then reduce that, mitigate that liability for the city or the county or whatever. Well, we've talked about it's, this. It's, it's tough. It's a tough balance. Yeah. I get it. The budget's there. Um, but fuck, man, you talk about funding. We, we make, we make very short term decisions. I mean, one of, one of the consequences of the U S political system being as volatile as it is versus other parts of the world. And I'm not arguing for, you know, a, a president for life. Believe me, I'm not arguing for that, but you know, our, our political cycle is less than two years, right? Chiefs of police last three to four years. Yeah. City managers last two to three years. So they don't really give a shit what's going to happen in five years. They could, they're concerned about the next two years, which is what are we doing with this year's fiscal budget and what are we doing next year's fiscal budget? Um, the problem is we're making trades there. Again, recurring theme, we are making trades for future consequences, yeah. right? One of the guys that works for me always talks about like, you know, screwing his future self. Like, you know, oh man, you know, future Brent's going to look back at this and say, God, past Brent was such an asshole, right? Like, we are making long-term decisions with your career with guys that are going to be in that office for three years and sometimes are from an outside agency. Well, Sheriff, Sheriff Lamb said this perfectly. In those people that are making those financial decisions within law enforcement that have promoted are yeah. managing million-dollar budgets when they don't have the ability or knowledge to manage their own budget at home, which is and significantly have never small. been trained on it. Yeah, and that yeah. is the person that is telling you, no, you can't go to this $125 class. Yeah, it's uh, Kevin Sear, the guy from RCMP. One of my favorite lines in my interview with Kevin is he said, you know, they handed me, I've got a 20, I think it's a $23 million budget for a SWAT team. And he's like, um, biggest financial decision I've ever made was buying a house and I was terrified and didn't really know what I was doing. Didn't read anything. And now they're like, signed. here's $23 million. Like, don't screw this up. Yeah. And again, easy. we're not adequately training. We're not giving like what should be happening as in an agency, there should be somebody that's helping with fiscal decisions. Yeah. But, but part of the problem for law enforcement, and I didn't realize this until we started doing the, the foundation stuff is law enforcement or government are consumers of money. They're not makers of money. They're consumers of money, yeah. right? The, the chief of police never has to think about how the money is made, right? I, I've had that problem since I was 17, right? If I didn't make enough money, I didn't eat. Yeah. So like, that's always kind of front of mind. Like you try to make fiscally responsible decisions, but when somebody just hands you money constantly, which is what happens with our government, we hand them money and they make decisions. Don't expect good fiscal planning because yeah. they don't have to think about where it comes from. But yeah, we're making a lot of really short-term decisions right now that are, are, I mean, we're seeing now the long-term consequences, right? We're seeing police departments having the, the most difficult time they've ever had retaining cops, 
Uh, hiring is, I, 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 I will tell you, worldwide, but especially in the U.S., 60-man team means 42 guys. Yeah, yeah that's, we see that area. All right, I got one last question for you. Yep. When you first started, you talked about making climbing gear and rappelling and ropes and stuff. Are you a mountain climber? I was then. I, I, I would boulder and rock climb. Okay. Um, yeah, I was never, it just, I sat next to a girl in college who was like, hey, I work for this climbing company and I go climbing me with- Me too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Pretty much. I'm an expert climber. Pretty much. Yeah. The, that's yeah. the story of my career right yeah. there, Kyle. It's a whole lot of, oh yeah, I, I can do that. Yeah, I can do it. Uh, but yeah. she, you know, she had, they had this climbing device that they were going to be selling. She's like, we understood a mail order business. I'm like, okay. Huh. And mm. off we went. You never know what door you open, man. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm confused why you asked that like an hour later. Because this whole time, this whole time, like this, because you talked about being 17, starting a business, making this climate, but, but you never said if you were or were not. I no, I mean, I bouldered and that kind of stuff. Super curious. I was never, apparently that's just what I do. I just find gear for people that do things that I don't do. Yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. it's, you're successful at it, so congratulations. <laughs> can, can you find something for Kyle to do? Because he just sometimes just tries to to pick on me and annoy me. Mostly. I, I think it's what makes your partnership yeah. beautiful. <laughs> exactly. I don't think you want to disturb that tension. <clears throat> oh yeah. John pump the debrief. Where can I find it? Uh, the debrief dot live. Um, it's also YouTube, any of the major platforms, the debrief with John Becker. Um, and you know, wherever you get your podcasts and, uh, you know, just if, if you know of somebody I should interview, if you have feedback, I, I would love to hear it. It's a passion project. It's a work in progress. Please, you know, write in, call in, do whatever, whatever we can do that will help guys be safer. We're in for perfect. So you're our competition. Got it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, kidding. I looked at it as a cooperative thing, but no, totally, totally <laughs> kidding. I, dude, I think it's awesome. The, the more people that talk about this, then the better. You know, maybe not in our time, but in due time. Those behind us, well, it'll be better for them. Oh, yeah, for I mean, sure. realistically, dude, like when we're looking and we're like, cops are so well-trained that the podcast space is so overcrowded with good quality, then we're competitors. Until then, it's cooperative. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. And we're not there yet. So. Definitely not. Well, you're um, awesome. Thanks for coming in. It, dude, it's my nice. Pleasure. Appreciate it. After Kyle stood you up twice. Yeah, my bad. So. It's if, worth it. If people want gear, uh, tactical gear, outfit their SWAT teams, we're send them. Hardworktactical.com. Okay. Um, you know, you reach out. It's, you know, I, we're, we're always happy to talk to teams and, uh, you know, find new products and, and help it any way we can. One, one of our views of the business relationship is that my job is to keep you safe. That doesn't always mean I sell you stuff. So we are more than happy to field calls from people who are like, hey, we're looking at this. Even if something we don't sell will help. Uh, we, we deal with so many teams. I'm always, a lot of my job is pointing teams to other teams and saying, hey, these guys are using this. So if you have questions, you have, you know, things you can't solve, reach out to us. And, and if, if we if we don't know, we will find you somebody that does. Cool. I'll put all the links for the websites, the debrief. All. We'll put all in the description. So it'll be in the show notes. Um, thank you, dude. It was an honor to yeah. Thank you, man. pleasure meeting you. Yeah, thank um, you. Mark, you can't reach over the table, but yeah. you guys can probably knuckle it out or something. <laughs> you, again, you're doing weird, weird just, stuff. Just being hateful. Yeah. Just, just being hateful. Anyways, <laughs> thanks, guys. John Becker. Thank you. See ya.